Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Uh, and today we're going to cover a lady with a story that's a little bit cloudy, in part because it's many hundreds of years old. And in part because accounts of her life involve a combination of propaganda and a a pretty significant account of her life is an outsider's interpretation of it. So we are talking about the Mongol warrior princess Kudyun. And we will mention there are many variations on ways to say her name. And there's actually debate, I think, even among scholars on which is the correct one. Additionally, uh, Tracy and I do not speak Mongolian. So the sort of breathier... Uh, sound of consonants is not what we're going to go with because it would sound very silly and probably at best patronizing for us to attempt it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and at worst, I horrifyingly insulting. Yes. As I similarly <laughs> was listening to Mongolian speakers say the names in this, I quickly concluded that if you and I attempted to mimic that, it would be disruptive and distracting and not respectful. Yeah. So uh, for her name pronunciation, we are going with Kudiyun. Uh If that's not the way you like to hear it said, we're sorry, but that's the scoop. Uh, we did that after we reviewed a number of different speakers saying it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's decisions have to be made. We had a lengthy conversation about how to say words this morning. Yes, we did. Genghis Khan's great-great-granddaughter was born in 1260. That was about 54 years after the Mongol Empire was founded in 1206. And she would ultimately become a legendary figure in Mongol history. Kudiyun's father was Kaidu, Khan of Mongolia, from 1269 to 1301. And Kaidu's leadership was in opposition to that of Kublai Khan, who was the fifth emperor of the Yuan dynasty, which I am also probably saying in the most horrible way imaginable. Uh, in 1260, around the same time that Kudiyun was born, the Mongolian Empire really had begun to seriously fracture in a civil war as different family lines tried to claim the title of Great Khan. And as this fracturing continued, the Kaidu-Kublai War began in 1268. Kaidu may have been motivated more by his beliefs in the traditional Mongol lifestyle than in a desire for land or power, finding the increasingly sedentary, indulgent court life to be an affront to the nomadic roots of the Mongols. And Kaidu spent the rest of his life from 1269 uh, fighting Kublai Khan over control of the Mongol territories. And Kaidu's daughter figured prominently in that effort. Kaidu had first gained the province of Turkestan through military alliance after first claiming it in 1263. And by the end of that decade, he was recognized as Khan by a significant number of Mongol chieftains. And it was through that support that he was able to wage war on Kublai Khan. As Kublai Khan's reign reached into the 1270s, Kaidu and his supporters asserted more and more that they were the true Mongols. And the land that they had occupied started to be called Mongolistan. During Genghis Khan's reign, he had made a law that the title of Khan being given to anyone had to be approved by all the branches of the royal lineage. So Kublai Khan's reign was truly seen as illegitimate because of all this fracturing within the Mongol Empire. Yeah, so just uh, to try to clarify a little, there are several people that are using the title Khan, but they are all arguing over who really has the right to use it uh, in its official capacity. 
So Kaidu's daughter is given multiple different names in historical accounts of her life, but the most common is Kudiyun, uh, which you will sometimes see spelled with a KH at the beginning and sometimes a Q. And the primary account that the West has had for information on her is the writing of Marco Polo. So keep in mind that her story, at least from the Western perspective, has been viewed largely through the eyes, as I said at the top of the episode, of an outsider. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more towards the end of the episode. The Venetian explorer wrote of her, quote, Now you must know that King Kaidu had a daughter whose name was Idruk, which in the Tartar is as much to say the bright moon. This damsel was very beautiful, but also so strong and brave that in all her father's realm there was no man who could outdo her in feats of strength. In all trials she showed greater strength than any man of them. I also have to wonder how much she would enjoy being called a damsel, but there's a whole translation thing going on there, so uh, we won't get hung up on it. In terms of physical appearance, Marco Polo described her as almost like a giantess, tall, muscular, stout, and shapely. As a young woman, Kudiyun completely eschewed the trappings of court life that her blood relatives enjoyed, uh, much as her father had. And just for clarity on all of these bloodline arguments, Kublai Khan was in fact her cousin. Kudiyun was, as Polo's description suggests, powerful and athletic. She was a horsewoman, an archer, a wrestler, and a military warrior. She had 14 brothers, and growing up, she participated in all of their competitive activities. And the Mongolian approach to wrestling did not match opponents to one another based on weight class or size, so anyone could wrestle anyone. Additionally, the style involved no time limits, and the competitors were not confined to a specific space. Matches started with the opponents standing, and they would kind of grab each other at the waist and sometimes the arm. And if any part of the competitor, of a competitor touched the ground other than their feet, that was the end of the match. And Kudiyun was really good at wrestling, even though she was in, oftentimes uh, wrestling with men much larger than she was. While she's the most famous for her wrestling prowess, you could also make the case that what really sets Kudiyun apart as a unique figure in Mongolian history is the fact that she was an active participant in the military, serving alongside her father. And we'll talk a little bit about that and why it both is and is not unique uh, in just a little bit. But part of the reason that she was accepted in a military leadership role and was willingly followed by the majority of the men who served under her was actually her wrestling ability. And that was because she was a champion athletically, so she was believed to have been blessed by divine powers. So her father's army, which was approximately 40,000 men, were pretty comfortable following somebody that they thought had higher powers on her side into battle. He had also, uh, her father had also given her what historian Jack Weatherford refers to as a gurgi, which is probably an approximation on pronunciation. And this was a medallion made of precious metal that was worn hanging like a pendant that denoted her position of status as bestowed by a Khan with the will of higher spiritual powers. Normally, these were only issued to men. There was also another type of medallion that a woman could be given as a symbol of status, but Kudiyun was granted the men's seal. And to the best of my knowledge, and at least one of the uh, historians that I read talking about this said that she is the only woman on record as receiving the men's seal. 
And just as with wrestling, she excelled in battle. And her methodology, at least in the the early part of any given skirmish, was somewhat surprising. So as she and her father would approach the enemy on horseback, she would ride next to her father initially, and then she would bolt towards the opponent force. She would seize one of their men. This is often described, quote, as deftly as a hawk pounces on a bird. Uh, and that's according to Marco Polo's writing. And then she would take that man, her prey, back to her father. This was not a move that she did once that became legendary. She did it over and over, and it terrified her enemies. Her repeated success in using this technique to sow fear in the ranks of enemy troops also added to her image among her own people as a woman who was blessed and acted with divine powers on her side. Yeah, it's one of those things you think about. Think, how can that work over and over? Didn't they know it was coming? Uh, there's not, not a lot of... Uh, research that I could find about how their various military opponents viewed this, like how they prepared for it or if they prepared for it. Maybe it's like when you know there's a jump scare coming and the anticipation of it makes it worse. That is a very good uh, uh, um, guess at what might be the case there. But together, she and Kaidu Khan defended the steppe region of Western Mongolia successfully for years. And while Kublai Khan and his dynasty sent army after army of men to Mongolia in an effort to make a land grab, Kudiyun and her father defeated every such attempt. Coming up, we're going to talk about Kudiyun's requirements for any suitor who wanted to marry her. But first, we're going to take a quick pause for a word from a sponsor. So uh, the big thing about Kudiyun's story that people often fixate on is her unwillingness to marry unless a man could best her in wrestling. Because of her familial status and her military skills, she was an extremely desirable bride. So many men took the challenge. Many men. When a man challenged her, he also had to wager horses in the deal. And initially, the number is said to have been 10 horses. Then it increased until the standard wager was a hundred horses. If the challenger were to win, Kudiyun would become his bride. But if he were to lose, she got to keep all the horses. She allegedly accumulated a herd of 10,000 horses by collecting her winnings from her opponents. This was a livestock accumulation that would have rivaled that of the emperor himself. That's a lot of horses. I, I don't, don't even know. I can't care even imagine. for them. Yeah. <laughs> Looking after 10,000 horses. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm sure they had people to do that. But according to the account of Kudiyun, again, written by Marco Polo, 1,000 horses came from a single suitor around 1280, when Kudiyun would have been about 20 years old. And Polo's writing uh, indicates that her parents had grown pretty concerned about her lack of a husband by this point, And they had urged her to throw this match so that she could marry the man in question because he was a very desirable match. He was a prince, although we don't really know much more than that. And the match drew a lot of excitement from the community. Allegedly, Kudiyun had told her parents that she was on board with this whole idea of letting the prince win. But when the time actually came to wrestle him, her competitive spirit got the better of her and she did not stick to the plan. All of this is completely unsubstantiated. We don't really know one way or another how she felt about this particular prince. She may have never even considered letting him win. Yeah, again, that's one of those things that is an, it could potentially be true, could also be an embellishment of a historian. We don't know. Uh, and the prince was actually 
in addition to being a desirable match as a husband, it was a pretty good match for her in terms of wrestling skill. This bout lasted a long time with no clear dominator until Kuriyun had this moment where she summoned all her strength for one powerful move in which she was able to pitch the prince to the ground. Obviously, she won, but this had other consequences. First, the prince, who was humiliated in front of her parents' royal court, took off, leaving his thousand horses behind. And to quote Marco Polo's version of the story, quote, And when he found himself thus thrown and her standing over him, great indeed was his shame and discomfiture. He got him up straight away and without more ado, departed with all his company and returned to his father full of shame and vexation that he who had never yet found a man that could stand before him should have been thus worsted by a girl. But additionally, this dissuaded most other prospects from stepping up to challenge Kudayun. She might have had an inkling to marry her Persian co- uh, cousin, Ilkhan Gazan. The two of them did seem to have a relationship of some sort, and they exchanged some correspondence. But to marry him, she would have had to leave her life, live in a more subservient role to her husband. Kudayun and her cousin did not wed... Some versions of the story suggest that it was her father who put an end to this possible union, and then the rumors began. Yeah, so as an unmarried woman who spent so much time with her father, Kudiyun began to be the subject of gossip and rumors. And the enemies that Kudiyun and her father had faced, possibly out of uh, spite because they had all lost, asserted that Kudiyun wasn't interested in a husband because father and daughter had an incestuous relationship. This propaganda spread very quickly, and it was deeply damaging to the family. Uh, whether there was any element of truth to it, we do not know. There are writings that say that she said things like, I don't want to marry anyone, I want to be with my father forever, hinting at a romantic thing. But again, those are written from the point of view of people that probably weren't fans of hers to begin with. So they could be completely fabricated. It was eventually those damaging rumors that led Kudian to put aside her rule about suitors having to wrestle her to claim her as a bride. Her father was a man of strict habits who deeply valued honor. So to have such dishonorable gossip associated his name was truly upsetting to him and in turn to his daughter. So to help restore her father's name and put an end to the rumors that plagued the family, Kudiyun chose a husband for herself from the men who were loyal to her father. And she chose a man named Abdukul, and the two were married. And since she hadn't made her new husband best her in athletic ability, she did remain undefeated as a wrestler. But her marriage just added another character to the bizarre and lurid rumors. There's a fanciful story that started circulating that uh, Abtakul was actually an assassin sent to murder Kaidu, got captured, and behaved in such an honorable way that Kaidu made him an officer in the military. And that was allegedly how he met Kudiyun, which, uh, when he was injured on the battlefield during an engagement. Yeah, we don't know if there's any, <laughs> any veracity to that at all. Uh, but we do know that Kudiyun, even after her marriage, did continue to serve in her military role along with her father, and that he trusted her basically above all his other children. In early 1301, Kaidu, with his daughter at his side as usual, launched a military campaign that struck deeper into Mongolia to engage Kublai Khan's forces. And this battle lasted for days. 
But on the fourth day, Kaidu was injured. And he did manage to win the battle through a, a wacky bit of deception and sort of sleight of hand and confusing the enemy. But he became gravely ill. While he received treatment for what had started as bad stomach pain, Kaidu's condition only got worse. He developed dysentery and died in February of 1301. Kaidu is alleged to have attempted to name Kudiyun as his successor as the next Khan of their people. But whether because of her own desire or because her brothers were chagrined by the idea of Kudiyun as Khan, it appears that she made the case that she would rather be the leader of the Mongol military than the Khan. And she instead supported one of her brothers as the next leader of their people. There is an account of all this written by Rashid al-Din that indicates that while Kudiyun may have been accepted as a military official while her father was alive, the concept of a woman Khan was just a bit too far. And with Kaidu gone, sentiments against her that might have been more hidden while her father was alive started to surface. An adversary who wanted the title of Khan for himself allegedly insulted her by saying, You should mind your scissors and needles. What have you to do with kingship and chieftainship? Kudiyun only lived for five years after her father died, and her death is something of a mystery. At the age of 45 or 46, so that would have been 1306, she was suddenly deceased. Uh, the cause is unknown, although the two most popular speculations are either that she died in battle or that she was the victim of an assassination. Next up, we'll talk about some of the critical thinking that you have to do when you're talking about this particular piece of history. But before that, we'll have one more quick word from a sponsor. At this point, we should point out that while Kudiyun is lauded for her military service when discussed as a historical figure, she was certainly not the only Mongol woman to have fought in battles and to have had excellent horsemanship skills as well as archery skills. So keep in mind that while the style of warfare that was favored at the time in many cultures involved a lot of hand-to-hand combat among the men that a woman would have clearly been disadvantaged at, Mongolian warfare on the steppes relied heavily on bow and arrow combat, and a woman with a bow and arrow on horseback could be a formidable opponent just as a man could. Girls and boys alike were trained in archery from a young age, and they had to protect their familial livestock against predatory animals like wolves. There are accounts of Mongolian women warriors in Muslim and Christian writings dating back to 1234, which were once again recorded instances of secondhand accounts that were penned, in this case by a Dominican friar and archbishop, after interviewing refugees that had run from the Mongols into Russia. Yeah, and that's colored uh, by sort of the fear that the Mongols are going to attack Christendom. So there's there's a whole uh, patina over that account that may not be entirely accurate either. But as those and other accounts were several decades earlier than Kudiyun's birth, there was uh, some pretty solid precedent for her status in the military as a woman. She may have been unusually high-ranking, but she was not an outlier being a woman in combat. But it does appear that Kudiyun was unique in that she held a position of leadership and was considered by many to be superior to her male counterparts. She does appear to have been truly singular as a woman who bested all challengers in wrestling, though. There are enough overlapping accounts of her and her wrestling from varying sources that we can be reasonably certain that that particular aspect of her life story is at least rooted in truth. 
The other thing to think about when looking at this piece of Mongolian history is how much of it really does rely on the account of Marco Polo. Uh, historian Jack Weatherford, who we referenced earlier, mentioned in his book, The Secret History of the Mongol Queens, that Marco Polo was not really privy to the long history of indecisive battling that had been going on among the warring factions of the Mongols for a while. So he was, in many cases, relying on accounts of battles that were told to him by those factions, likely with embellishment. So to some degree, he was getting and relaying propaganda rather than accurate history. Additionally, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, what we get from Polo's narrative is probably more indicative of how Europeans perceived Mongolian culture than how the social structure of the culture actually functioned. Yeah. And then uh, Kudian's life story has been dramatized in multiple places throughout the years. Uh, in 1710, Francois Petit de la Croix included her in a book of Asian stories and fables. And in that telling, she is referred to as Turando, a title which translates roughly to Turkish daughter. And she challenges her would-be suitors to battles of wit rather than wrestling. They have to answer several riddles. But the losers in that dramatized telling give up their lives rather than horses if they lose. Turindo, Princess of China, was a play first penned by Italian Carlo Giozzi in the mid-18th century, and then adapted by German writer Friedrich von Schiller. And, of course, there's a Puccini opera of the same name, uh, which the composer was working on when he died in 1924. If you've uh, ever heard of any of the many performances of Nessun Dorma, one of the most famous pieces of opera of all time, you've heard part of Turindo. Yeah, uh, that's one of those pieces that you hear all the time. It's absolutely beautiful. Uh, and of course, in current media, the Netflix series Marco Polo also features Kudayun as a character. Oh, this is a very fictionalized and very sexualized version of the historical Mongolian woman. Uh, so if you're interested and you turn to that, please know that it's very sexualized. And if you like it, that's cool. And it may be really fun eye candy, but it is definitely not an adherent to a historical fact. Yeah. It basically starts her her appearance in that uh, series, which I think ran for two seasons, basically starts with the cliche of the man wrestles with the lady and then it escalates immediately from there. Yeah, and they, you will note, there that wrestling is not the kind of wrestling we described here. It's very much the roll-on-the-ground kind. Yeah. More like Greco-Roman wrestling. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a trope. Uh, also, Kudayun is featured on Rejected Princesses, which, you know, we love Rejected Princesses. Yeah, you may recall Jason was a guest on our show, so it all ties together. We all love Kudayun. She's a really fascinating figure and people love her, but it is one of those things where there's a lot of, like, head scratchy. Huh, how much of this is the truth and how much of this is crabby people that didn't like her writing about her? Like, even at the time, that's very propaganda-oriented and then, of course, it's been romanticized so much that it's hard to pick out what exactly is is truly based in reality. And when your one source is Marco Polo. That, <laughs> your one uh, source is Marco Polo. <laughs> your one, yep, your one source is Marco Polo. Uh, hey, Holly, what podcast are you listening to? Um, so this one has absolutely nothing to do with history, but one of my very favorite podcasts is uh, What's the Tea with RuPaul and Michelle Visage. Uh, I highly recommend it to lots of people. It's very uplifting, super fun. I have never laughed so hard in my life. I'm saying that with absolute conviction as the episode where Niecy Nash is a guest on that show. Um, 
Super duper fun. Definitely some adult language. So take that into consideration uh, if you go looking for it. But it is really delightful. And we're mentioning this because throughout the month of March, podcasters are sharing some of the things they love. But we're also encouraging you listeners of podcasts to share the things you love about podcasting and the titles that you love with people that you think might like podcasts and maybe haven't gotten into them yet. So uh, if you think What's a Tea with Ruby Paul and Michelle Visage might be good for a friend of yours, let them know about it. They would probably delighted and who doesn't want to laugh uh so you can do that go ahead and and recommend things to people but also share them on social media use the hashtag try try pod tripod and uh you can also just look at that hashtag and see what other people are recommending and talking about it's it's kind of an effort to just make sure people know about the vast wealth of podcasts available to them there is literally something for everybody uh so with that we will then hop into listener mail which is from uh, our listener, Elise. I think that is how she pronounces her name. She sent us a little parcel of cards as a Mardi Gras present. It says, Happy Mardi Gras. Hello, ladies. I'm writing to thank you for the many hours of informational entertainment. I had written you before, but neglected to put your address on it. Oops. Please ignore that message. <laughs> I live in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and would love to have an episode about Huey P. Long. I love the episodes on Mardi Gras and really think you'd love Huey's story. Enclosed are some postcards from LSU Hill Memorial Library. Please enjoy. Sincerely, Elise. There are some really fun historical postcards. I will uh, take a picture of those and share them. Thank you so much, Elise, for writing us and uh, sharing these beautiful images with us. One in particular is absolutely stunning. It is a, a the launch of a fashion line from an unidentified designer, but it's just a beautiful photograph composition-wise. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We are also very easily reachable across the span of social media as at Mist in History. So that means on Twitter as at Mist in History, on Instagram at Mist in History, at mistinhistory.tumblr.com, at facebook.com slash Mist in History, and pinterest.com slash Mist in History. If you would like to do a little personal research and just get some more learning under your belt, you can go to our parent site, How Stuff Works. Type in almost anything you're interested in in the search bar and you will get a wealth of information and articles to choose from. If you would like to visit us, you can do so at mistinhistory.com, where we have an archive of every single episode that has ever happened of the show. And for the episodes that Tracy and I have worked on, there are show notes. Uh, however, going forward, we have just changed our format of how we handle show notes. They will be included on the podcast episode page now. So uh, while the older ones will still be separate, newer ones from this point going forward will all be together. So it's less clicking around for you. All of your information is consolidated. So please come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 